and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your approximately monthly look at the world of evidence. It's the winter season. The crazy Christmas edition of the BMJ is full up with lots of things that we might not publish at other times of year. And we're focused on that content today. And like all things connected to our Christmas content, some of it makes you laugh, some of it makes you think. Uh, with me to discuss it are Joe Ross, very important professor of internal medicine at Yale and the BMJ's US research editor. Hi, Joe. Hi, where did the very important come from, Helen? I'm I just inserted that. that for Christmas. <laughs> I just, it's a time of giving compliments. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm going to describe him as our rising star, because that sounds a bit festive as well. Um, Juan Franco from Argentina, who is editor-in-chief of BMJ EBM, that's the Evidence-Based Medicine Journal, um, and a GP out in Argentina. Uh, and I think, Juan, you might be clawing your way towards our most frequent guest on this show. Hi. Well, hi. Thanks for the Christmas compliment. Well, we have a real Christmas cracker for you today, uh, full of surprises. Uh, but um, tell us uh, how are your holiday preparations coming along, both of you. Well, for me, actually, Hanukkah season just finished. So, as the as a, as a, so we you know we made our latkes, we we lit our menorah and uh, rolled our dreidels and and had a nice time of it. The sad part, of course, was that um, my oldest daughter is now away at university, so it was uh, it felt a little small, but but festive nonetheless. What about you, Juan? Juan's got, because people can't see this, he's got a fan behind him, fanning him because it's so lovely and warm in your environment, in contrast to me. Yeah. So, yeah, our Christmas are quite different here, uh, down in, in Latin America. We, we have to prepare uh, cold, uh, um, cold food and cold drinks, and we made that everything at the last minute. So... Uh, no specific preparations, but it's quite unusual. No snow. Well, did either of you or have either of you sent any greetings cards? No, no they just end up in this spam uh, folder, don't they? Oh, well, okay. Well, you may be, you may be preempting our first, our first paper here because our first Christmas paper is about Christmas cards. And this is a trial, a trial in a Christmas BMJ edition. And it's to determine the effectiveness of sending Christmas cards to participants in randomised controlled trials to increase their retention rate and follow up. And this is a real problem because um, we know that over the course of trials, you often lose people to follow up. And there was a second question here that they had, which was whether undertaking a SWAT, which they summarise as a study within a trial, um, would also work. And, th and this looks at studies within actually eight trials. So presumably you can mix up the different types of participants and um, look at people who have different medical problems and ask questions about how to run trials better. Um, and I'm afraid the sad news was that um, sending Christmas cards to participants in trials did not increase retention. Um, however, they did discover, on a more positive note, that it was possible to undertake the study, the, the study within trials um, at the same time. So it was like kind of mixed news. Um, do either of you do trials? Joe, do you know much about 
retention in trials? Oh, well, you know, it's it's been a, a new muscle I've been gaining this uh, past couple of years. We're running four clinical trials right now, and we are constantly debating how to engage participants to make sure they mm-hmm. complete their follow-up questionnaires, make sure that, you know, everything gets done. And, you know, our team debates, should we get buttons or magnets? Should we mail them things? And let's just say that... Uh, this study, you know, it, it de- definitely dampened my enthusiasm for mailing out magnets. Or although, mm. you know, I'm, I'm generalizing the results of a Christmas card to a magnet, but uh, it, it, do- <laughs> it does not seem uh, that, that that type of... But that doesn't seem harsh because there was a linked editorial with this um, by a guy called Jeremy Taylor, and he sort of summarized that there isn't very much good evidence in this space. So, it, so this is a kind of useful study in, in that sense. But he did point out that Christmas cards didn't seem like a very strong contender because maybe the thing that we really value about Christmas cards is the fact that they come from people who we love and having a Christmas card from your trial investigator maybe just doesn't feel quite right. It feels a little icky, like when you get it from, uh, you, you know, you're, in the United States sometimes, like if you see a specialist physician, they'll send you a Christmas card afterwards and you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want a Christmas card from my orthopedic surgeon after he fixed my knee. And as you say, Joe, some people don't, um, you were not, ce- you're not celebrating Christmas and there are many people who don't celebrate Christmas. So sending them a Christmas card again feels like a little bit sort of almost culturally divisive. Uh, H- Helen, what I'm well. hearing you say is that we should be sending out magnets to all of our uh, study participants and <laughs> let them know that, you know, we, we care about them, we appreciate them. And then here's a little, here's a little swag from our study to, to keep them engaged. So what's your, what's your best uh, engagement currently? Joe, you mean oh, uh, no, we, well the buttons I think when you hand them out to people that that's that's worth it. what do you mean by a button that's like a, cho- a miniature chocolate where I where no I no live. no a, like a badge you a mean badge. a badge yeah yeah that you give people and or you wear you know it just it, it, it gives a little um, you know sort of a th- reality to the study and it helps them know that it is it's a for real thing any thoughts Juan uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to you see don't have the evidence to give any that. <laughs> no, I'm not sure if that's. I mean, I think that the problem with trial participants is ha- having them feel less of a of a mice in an experiment, and uh, and because they have to do all these uh, checks, uh, answering questionnaires, for uh, being called back at several time points, and they sort of feels like their bodies are part of something very impersonal. So I I do wonder if. If, if some of these initiatives could backfire, for example, giving them a badge saying, I'm in an experiment, I'm a subject. Oh, but I'm no, but experiment. you know how we do it? No, no, it, it's because we're trying to create a community. Like the way we're trying to organize these trials is, you know, people are kind of working together and sharing their experience. And we do it in, uh, in a way so that all the information is collected remotely. So they're not, they don't have to come back. They just kind of, you know, punch through and, and answer surveys through their phone. And the the magnets, the, 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 the buttons, what did you call them? Not buttons, you called them... Uh, Badge. Badges. Badges, badges. Um, it's to remind them that they're part of this community and that they're, you know, what their, their experience is helping other people learn. So that's the hope. Okay. That is the hope. Do you have time in your day to stay current with the ever-changing medical information needed to treat your patients? With your busy schedule, it can't be much. That's why you need UpToDate. 
Up to Date provides accurate, evidence-based clinical information and treatment recommendations in an organised and searchable format so you can find answers you can trust quickly and easily. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on Up to Date in their daily practice. Visit go.uptodate.com talk. That's go.uptodate.com talk and use promo code TALK to save US$25 on your annual or longer subscription. So, there is this genre of BMJ Christmas research paper, um, and I think it's to kind of showcase things about EBM, or evidence-based medicine. I think they're quite hard to spot, these papers. Often they're quite confusing at our manuscript meetings where we discuss these papers, often the statisticians and people really, really like them and you have some of the clinical editors really struggling to to get their heads around. When I say some of the clinical editors, I mostly mean me. Um, and I uh, called upon you, Juan, this year. In fact, when this paper was um, accepted, I suggested that you might be a good person to write about it and see if you could demystify it for the average reader. And you kind of hijacked that agenda because you used your editorial to talk about AI, artificial intelligence, but I'm gonna make you explain the EBM principles first, which are at the heart of the issue. So this paper is called Giving Science the Finger. And the question is, is the second, Joe's chuckling already, uh, probably at how badly I'm gonna explain this. Um, Is the second to fourth digit ratio, i.e. the length of your fingers and the difference of them, a biomarker of good luck. It's a cross-sectional study. So the concept is that this length in between your fingers or this ratio between them, it reflects exposure to testosterone when you're in the uterus. And that makes it a biomarker. Um, And there are also genetic things that might alter that ratio as well. And it's quite easy to measure Uh, And so people have been measuring it. And maybe as a result of that, they've tried to link it to a load of health outcomes. Um, So the questions are, I think, twofold. Are these relationships that they found between the biomarker finger or the finger biomarker and the outcomes plausible? And are they reproducible? So to give you an example of how silly some of them are, it says... um, you know, how can this biomarker in utero predict the risk of myocardial infarction and age of onset, but also the likelihood of someone becoming a firefighter or making a specific choice of Coca-Cola products from a vending machine? So it sort of seems silly. Oh, but but don't forget also risk of COVID infection. (laughs) And risk of COVID infection. Joe, you've been reading the paper carefully, not spacing my intro for that one. Um, They attempted to try and demystify this by trying to determine whether there was a relationship between this biomarker and luck, which they determined as winning at a hand of poker, which was basically being given five cards and working out if you, how how good your hand was. And they also, with the same group of people, did lots of measures about their body composition um, from seemingly slightly physiological plausible ones to less plausible ones. So um, they found uh, several associations between uh, this 2D, 4D um, digit. I I must say that this is the first time I've I've started reading about this, so I had to get get into the background things. And 
uh, and some of the but these associations were not consistent. For example, the the uh, how lucky you were depended on what type of measurements you had, and uh, and and there was more association with uh, some physical traits of people than with the luck of their card. So mostly uh, findings are, are mostly negative. Uh, but what I thought, um, I'm going to hijack again <laughs> your your question, and I'm going to re reply to the EBM part. And I think that the, that the most interesting part is how you think about uh, this association and what the meaning of these associations are in the sense that is there, is there a cause and effect? And of course, if, ideally, for, for EBMers, we like uh, doing trials, right? Or we like evidence from trials. But for many of these questions, you cannot do a trial because these are patient, uh, people's characteristics and how do you link a patient, people's characteristics with an, a certain outcome. So you have to do an observational study. And that observational study is based on a numerous assumptions that link this exposure or this characteristic to this outcome. And it's interesting how you model that with all the confounders and how, what's your theory behind how you link those two, this association. So, for example, the 2D, 4D with sumo wrestling. What is the casual pathway that would link uh, 2D, 4D with sumo wrestling? And, and how detailed all the possible confounders can be and both identify, conceptualize, and analyze so you are confident that the association might be causal. And I think that in this, this paper, um, um, narrating in the background all these uh, associations uh, that seems a little bit random are a good example of, of saying, oh, if, if I were to use this article in a, in, a, in, in a class with students, I would say, okay, here's the whiteboard. Could you draw what are the possible causal pathway between this exposure and, and this outcome? And I, I'm, I'm saying that with some of these associations, probably there will be a, a great struggle. So does it make a good teaching paper for you then? Does this kind of enter your EBM teaching classroom as of 2022? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it could be used for, for that to those, uh, those examples about all the associations that seems a little bit random. And uh, it also could serve for the purpose of a p hacking and multiple testing where you can get a, a lot of false positive uh yeah I, I, you could use that as an illustrative example. what about you joe is it does this go down as a good ebm teaching paper for you I think it's useful. I mean, in some ways, it reminds me of that um, the old uh, analysis. I think it was of the ISIS trial. Maybe it was the Gusto trial, whichever one it was, where they looked at astrology signs and likelihood of benefit from, uh, uh, I think it was a stroke treatment, but maybe it was MI. I should have looked this up before we talked about it. But, uh, you know, the this idea that, you know, I think it was Libras do better and Geminis do worse. I mean, it's, a, of course, totally absurd, right? And, and this provides, you know, a nice example and another example that, you know, and but what I really liked about this paper is that it also demonstrated the critical importance of pre-specification because it showed how the different measurement techniques, the different hands, um, all led to different correlations. And so how if you did not pre-specify, 
you know, that you're looking at left hand 2D to 4D ratio, you know, measured using a radiograph as opposed to a photocopier, uh, you know, you could have different results uh, when you're then looking at your correlation. So it, 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 it's both sort of wallows in the absurdity of it all while also showing, you know, how some of these sort of real important principles in uh, trial design and pre-specification uh, are why they're so important. Well, we shall see if it becomes a classic. Um, close by to that one um, in the journal is going to be another association paper. This one is looking at the association between the density of heavy metal bands in your area and cause specific hospital admissions and mortality. So I'm thinking this sounds a bit tenuous. Joe, um, tell us a bit more about this one. Yeah, well, you know, this was, you know, prompted, there's a, actually a whole host of studies around classical music and and outcomes of care and in surgery and all sorts of stuff. And so they play with this idea by looking at um, the density of heavy metal bands <laughs> uh, and, and associations with, you know, hospitalizations and death. And they find no associations in most areas, but in the highest density areas, uh, for whatever reason, when there's more heavy metal bands, uh, people live a little bit longer and have a slightly lower risk of hospitalization, even for things you would expect, like uh, alcohol use. It makes absolutely no sense, and there's no reason so for it. So you don't believe it? I, of course I do not believe it. I mean, they joke like, well, maybe, you know, there are cultural benefits to having bands and going out to the club and seeing music. But, um, you know, it, it, it just shows you um, some of the, you know, the ecological concerns with, with some observational research studies. The other thing you learn by reading this paper, this, stu this study was done in Finland which purports in the paper to be the heavy metal capital of the world, a fact noted by Barack Obama, I noticed in the introduction to this paper. <laughs> well, if Barack Obama is letting us know. <laughs> I know. I don't know, Juan, do you believe these findings? Uh, no, but then again, I don't like heavy metal music. <laughs> so we all have our biases. Oh, you're biased, yeah. you're biased. <laughs> I, I prefer I the Mozart effect, right? They, they do do a nice thing, what we are encouraging observational researchers to do, which is to use negative control outcomes, right? To sort of confirm whether or not the association is real. Right. And here they said they look at appendicitis as a negative control outcome and don't find an association, which makes you think. You mentioned negative controls there, Joe. And just to clarify for people who are listening who might not know what that means, you mean you're picking something which plausibly you do not think is going to be related to this. Um, well, you, you plausibly don't think there's going to be a link between those things. That's right. No, it's it was funny also that the other negative control they chose, it was heavy metal poisoning. A wink there. <laughs> right, sticking with the music and also a kind of kind of happy story, I guess. Uh, we have another research paper um, in in this year's issue, which is the association of Logic's hip hop song, Logic being a hip hop artist. Um, and his song um, is the title of a phone helpline, um, which you would call if you're in um, distress and contemplating uh, suicide or feeling very low in the US. And these authors look at whether the song's release 
the MTV Music Video Awards in 2017, in which it also featured, and the Grammy Awards in 2018, in which it also featured. Um, it looked at the association between those events and the song and calls to this lifeline um, and suicide data before and after. And they found that in the 34-day period immediately following those three events, um, which is when the strongest public attention was on uh, Logic's song, they found an association with um, an increase in calls to Lifeline um, and during the same period, a reduction in the number of suicides that were being observed across those time periods, um, which is a really interesting finding because often as someone that kind of works in publishing in the media, most of what we hear is about publicity around um, suicidal events and unfortunately an increase in people um completing those events or in mimicking and copying methods that um, high-profile celebrities may have used um, in order to end their life. And so this, to me, seemed like quite a hopeful story about how um, the arts and how the media might be strongly, more strongly and more positively involved in, in reducing those um, very sad and catastrophic events. What did you two think of this one? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, the Christmas issue is filled with papers that are kind of sometimes clever, sometimes funny. In this case, you know, suicide is, you know, obviously a, a very serious problem. And the challenge of reaching the public by those in the medical profession, the you know, psychiatric profession, the public health profession, it, it's very, very difficult. And here we see, you know, when, you know, what you would think of as kind of a masculine artist, logic, you know, writing a song about, you know, his feelings of suicidality, uh, you know, making himself vulnerable through his music, it seems to have had a very beneficial effect. And this is, you know, I think important for public health people to take into account as they try to reach people that are at risk and most at need. Um, you know, the release of the song, you know, which has a telephone number in it to reach the suicide hotline, Increased calls was associated with an increased number of calls and a decrease in the number of uh, successful suicides. Or was it suicide attempts? Now I'm forgetting. But I, I, either way, um, I think it, it, it offers a, you know, a, a unique way uh, and potentially valuable way to, to reach people. And so I, I did find this quite hopeful. Juan, any thoughts? Well, uh, yeah, the, you know, there's also um, a, lot great, a great deal of stigma around the... Uh, suicide and how it's being portrayed in media. Uh, recent, there was uh, an issue with the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why and and that historical uh, Werther effect. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, Tell us about it. Uh, in, the, in the 18th century, uh, there was this um, uh, novel by Goethe called uh, Werther and it was um, a young man who falls in love uh, with a lady and he has a series of mishaps. And spoiler alert, he commits suicide. Uh, and then uh, at that time, it created uh, sort of this, what is called a copycat effect. A lot of people committing suicide for 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 problems related to, to love. And I think that um, ever since, there's been a great fear of discussing suicide in public and how it's been discussed uh, and, and what are the positive ways of approaching suicide in, pu in public discourse. And I think that this is an interesting sort of a reverse vertical effect uh, that we may be looking at this in this paper. Of course, it needs to be further explored. 
I've been on the low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feel like my life ain't mine. Who can relate? Woo! I've been on the low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feel like my life ain't mine. I don't wanna be alive. I don't wanna be alive. I just wanna die today. I just wanna die. Well, I saved the silliest paper for last and also uh, because Joe says that he can't help but laugh every time he reads this paper and I'm going to make him summarise it so he, he might just dissolve from here on into silliness. Um, and Juan, this is where you get to bring your artificial intelligence back in again. So here we go. So this last paper is to determine whether artificial intelligence or AI is capable of generating plausible and engaging Christmas BMJ article titles. Joe, tell us about it. Well, I just love this paper. <laughs> so, you know, the, of course, it's like it's so absurd, right? The, the idea that artificial intelligence can just like, you know, release, you know, or come up with all of these titles. And, and what they, they do in the study is, you know, they have this algorithm, it develops a bunch of titles, and they compare it to actual titles of Christmas papers, you know, with, you know, some some real humans rate them as like, which one, you know, was the most believable or the funniest. And, and, and there's, uh, you know, it's, what I have to admit is that uh, my research team, we have a Twitter thread that's constantly like pitching different ideas for the Christmas issue because it's always so fun. <laughs> and, and, my, and you look at these titles and it's like, oh, this is the kind of thing that comes up in our Twitter thread. <laughs> So give us give us a sense. What what I mean, give us some of your favorite titles. Well, so the one that was rated as most plausible was the association between belief in conspiracy theories and the willingness to receive vaccinations. And I just feel like, of course, that's a real title. Is it real or is it fake? No, that was fake. That was one of the AI ones. Um, they look give at another. A, another one: the clinical effectiveness of lollipops as a treatment for sore throats. A randomized controlled trial. Here, I'll give you one more. Stormy weather, a retrospective analysis of demand for emergency medical services during epidemic thunderstorm asthma. Juan, true or false? Um, I think uh, true, is it? No. That one was true. I know. So. <laughs> but I mean, there's all sorts of, and the, some don't come out quite as good. You know, there's the, the, the title of what would happen if we stopped wiping our bottoms. Uh <laughs> 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 but what what I had hoped with this article, I don't think it worked out, was that they could just put the algorithm on on, on the the page and just people could just keep generating titles, uh, just 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 for the fun of it. So, in the conclusion of this paper, it said, well, they conclude that AI can generate plausible, entertaining, scientifically interesting Christmas BMJ article titles. Um, but they say, as in other areas of medicine, performance was enhanced by human intervention. And Juan, I wondered if this is where you might want to come in on all things AI and, and where we currently stand. Well, uh, AI has been pushing many areas of medicine in diagnostics, prognostics, therapeutics. And, and, and I think that the acceptability of AI and what we demand AI in each of these areas, we expect it to be different. For example, if I'm if I'm predicting titles for the BMJ, I don't care how AI 
makes it. Uh, I just think it's funny, and, and perhaps we might follow up on some of these ideas. But if uh, a, an algorithm produced by AI tells me that a patient may have pulmonary embolism, well, I, I want to know a little bit more how he reached to that conclusion because it makes a huge difference to the patient. So I think that uh, uh, there, there's whole, this whole thing about what is called explainable AI, which was trying to find out the link between how AI works and how much we can figure out uh, um, its, uh, its validity. And moreover, how, how do we test that in clinical settings? Because AI may work, uh, have a good, what is called performance in some of these metrics, but then we still may need to run trials seeing if it, if, if AI-assisted uh, diagnostic, uh, prognostic-guided uh, therapies are better than uh, doc doctors without AI. So um, I think it's very promising, and, and, and it raises a lot of issues about how we think about uh, its conceptualization, its uh, acceptability, and validity. So you want to see inside the black box how these algorithms or whatever the um, AI creators are up to, and you want to see proper evidence that it is as good as or better than humans doing that yeah job. not only me, i want that uh, but also the patients uh, there's apparently there are research well, yes i'm yeah. saying you but i really mean yeah. you in a but, in a yeah expansive the, way the, the royal we as <laughs> yeah people we the people yeah the royal you i was <laughs> going to say the royal you but that doesn't we the people really yeah the, the royal <laughs> us the Royal Us. Uh, Helen, I know we're almost at the end, but I just wanted to bring up one last paper that I saw is coming out in the Christmas issue that it didn't come through the research team. I think you handled it. That, I, I, again, I just laughed out loud as I read, which was um, the bogus statement and checklist, the biased outcome reporting guidelines for underwhelming studies. Could you tell us a little bit about this uh, really new and important checklist? Oh, my goodness. I loved this paper. No, it didn't go through the research channels. It came through the non-research channels, which all filtered through me this year. And everyone who read this loved it. And it was, it was written by a single author. And I think, really, she is just taking off... Um, this kind of article type that exists these days, which is your reporting statement. And the BMJ publishes quite a lot of them. And you can't, I th it feels like you can't really write a paper without being constrained in some way by these reporting statements, which pertain to sort of help you report your research really well. And obviously in doing that, they often, you know, help you unspin your results, maybe make them um, a little bit less sexy. <laughs> <laughs> than they were when you started. And so the concept I think here is really just a kind of um, rather duplicitous thought experiment as to what would happen if you just let your mind run wild and you just kind of went for it in every way that you possibly could to get your paper reported. And I think you have to look at it. It's got lovely infographic that goes with it. And um, and it was um, it's, it's very funny, as Joe said. I mean, the... the um... The flow diagram that they walk you through is, <laughs> it, it, I mean, people will just laugh. You know, is the topic right? Is the topic likely to excite journal editors? No. Uh, add the word COVID to the title. Um, is the is the study statistically underpowered? Yes. Report the most favorable fit indices. <laughs> Report rounded down p values. 
Uh, and I love that it ends with, have you no sense of shame in your checklist and what to do? I know. <laughs> I think that it's funny the method she, she used to develop the guidance because we there's so many report guidance out there and they're not all properly uh, developed. She has all these one-to-one meetings with herself, uh, influenced by alcohol. That's her self-confession. So uh, I think she has 22 thoughts, yeah. doesn't she, about it, or 22 episodes of thinking, because usually about 22 people are involved in the generation of the guidelines. So I suppose she took 22 of her own original thoughts or something like that, didn't she, when she made yeah, it? Yeah, and, and that's a serious point too, because, I mean, not the ones published at the BMJ, of course, but there are so many other reporting guidelines that we don't know how they were developed and... Uh, she makes it fun of it. But, you know, conversely, and this really gets to what Christmas is all about, we all ha- we all sit and we all laugh about this now, but it does make a serious point. And actually, if you are a reader out there, if you are a reader or a consumer of research, you could do worse than sit with the bogus checklist next time you're reading a research paper and think, well, what can I spot here? What have people done to... Um, sort of build up their findings and and make the most out of them. Great. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Uh, And in fact, this year, we'll be back in 2022 uh, with more from the world of evidence. Do get in touch via Twitter if you'd like to contact us and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So for this year, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to anyone not celebrating Christmas this year. Goodbye from us. Bye.